fortunate aspect for me was that pretty quickly or early on, I realized that I was going to survive, right? It wasn't, and so when I moved past that, then it was like, well, I want my normal quality of life. Yeah. You know, how quickly can I get back to that? Welcome to Believe in Progress, the American Association for Cancer Research Foundation podcast. Join us and be inspired by the incredible stories of those who have faced cancer with strength and resilience and the medical professionals who are working tirelessly to find new treatments and ultimately a cure. Believe in Progress isn't just about the science of cancer. It's about the human side of this disease. Together, we can make progress in the fight against cancer and bring hope to those who need it most. Welcome to the Believe in Progress podcast featuring Doug Ullman, a leading voice in the fight against cancer. Doug Ullman is the chief executive officer of Pelotonia, which was established in 2008 with the objective to fund life-saving cancer research and today is a rapidly growing nonprofit. In this role, he is responsible for overseeing the strategic vision and direction of Pelotonia and also serves as an advisor to the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Solov Research Institute. Doug is a three-time cancer survivor and globally recognized cancer advocate. After overcoming chondrosarcoma during his sophomore year of college and malignant melanoma twice since, Doug and his family founded the Ullman Cancer Fund for Young Adults to ensure that all young adults impacted by cancer have a voice and the necessary resources to thrive. With funding from an Echoing Green Fellowship, Doug served as executive director of the organization for four years before joining the Livestrong Foundation in 2001 as director of survivorship. He went on to lead Livestrong as president and chief executive officer, establishing the organization as the global leader in cancer survivorship. Doug recently served as a Hauser leader at Harvard Kennedy School Center for Public Leadership and speaks frequently at some of the nation's most acclaimed festivals and conferences, including the Social Good Summit, the Inc. 500 5000 Conference, the Aspen Ideas Festival, the Clinton Global Initiative, the University and the TEDx Austin South by Southwest Interactive and YPO chapters across the country. Doug has also spoken to and consulted with numerous Fortune 100 companies and fast-growing startups. Doug's personal story and his leadership accomplishments have been featured on major media outlets, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes, Sports Illustrated, NBC News, ABC News, and MSNBC, among many others. Doug has been honored with many accolades, including twice being named on the Nonprofit Times Power and Influence Top 50 Nonprofit Executives list. Doug was also named CEO of the Year, Large Nonprofit by Columbus CEO Magazine in 2017, and the PR Professional of the Year by the Public Relations Society of America in 2013. Doug currently holds numerous board positions for organizations, such as the Ullman Cancer Fund for Young Adults, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, Athletes for Hope, and Root Insurance. He's also an active member of the Young Presidents Organization and the Columbus Partnership. Doug served for four years on the National Cancer Institute Director's Consumer Liaison Group and has served on the Board of the Union for International Cancer Control, as well as many other philanthropic healthcare and entrepreneurial ventures. Join us today as we explore the inspiring stories of patients, survivors, and researchers who are making a difference in the fight against cancer. This is the Believe in Progress podcast, 
hosted by the AACR Foundation and featuring my good friend, Doug Ullman. Doug, that was a long intro, buddy. Well, <laughs> well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to, great to be with you. Well, um, so Doug, I think it'd really be great for the audience to learn a little bit about you know, your cancer journey. Um, so you're at Brown University, um, you're playing soccer, and kind of fill in from, from here what, what happened. Yeah, so I was 19 years old. I was um, home in Maryland, staying with my parents for the summer, getting ready to go back for my sophomore year. And I was really passionate about soccer. I was training all summer. I had not gotten to play as much as I would like uh, my freshman year. And so I spent all summer sort of trying to get back in shape and, and be ready for preseason in August. And I was in the best shape of my life and, and feeling like a typical 19-year-old invincible um, and, and sort of looking to the future. And one night I went for a run um, with my older brother who happened to be in town and, and had, in my description, had gotten out of shape. And so we <laughs> went, for, went for a little run and we were goading each other a little bit. And when we got back, I was wheezing. And I had had asthma as a child, but I hadn't had an episode in a long, long time. And after about a, an hour or two, my parents said, you know, you should go to the emergency room. We should go get it checked out. And I thought, I'm fine. I'll be, I'll be totally fine. And they really encouraged me. And so we went to the emergency room. It was late on a weeknight. And uh, the physician there said, you're totally fine. It was a hot August, humid night. And he said, you probably got some allergen or something that you sort of breathed in as you were running and you'll be good to go in the morning. And as we were leaving the hospital, he said, you know, while you're here, let's just do a chest X-ray. And he did the X-ray and he said, it looks, looks great. Next morning I woke up, I was coaching soccer camp for little kids. I went to camp, I felt fine. And when I came home, there was a uh, voicemail on our answering machine at, at my parents' house. And it was our family physician who had been in the hospital that day and had looked at my x-ray. Apparently they notified him that I had been in. He looked at the x-ray and he said, you need to have a CT scan immediately. And uh, at the time, I didn't know this, but what he saw was a shadow behind my heart on the x-ray and he thought it could have been a heart condition. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had that CT scan and that, that allowed them to discover a, a tumor that was growing uh, attached to my rib cage. And, uh, and that's what sort of started the journey. Although at that time, we were told that it was probably benign because it actually was not the reason I was wheezing. It had nothing to do with the reason I went to the hospital and may have been there for a long time. And so they said, this is probably nothing. Don't worry about it. Um, and, and that's how it started. So what, what happens after that though? So now, now are you going to, are you going to Hopkins or, or where, where did the family take? Yeah. You? So, you know, it's interesting, like not dissimilar to a lot of people who are diagnosed we didn't know what to do. Right. And we were, you know, I was lucky. I have highly educated parents. We had insurance. We knew of Hopkins and we were in a, a region that had access to all kinds of places. And the first thing we did was talk to a neighbor of ours who happened to be a physician, not an oncologist, and sort of said, what would you do? You know, where would you go? And, and you know, it was sort of, um, in a way, not that dissimilar to what happens today for a lot of people. Um, so because they thought it was benign, I ended up going to the University of Maryland um, Medical Center in Baltimore, and they scheduled surgery. Um, although, because they thought it was benign, they said, you know what, if you want to go back to school, you can go back, and we can do this over winter break, so you don't miss the soccer season. 
And that sounded really appealing, but then I, I sort of thought, I can't, I don't know that I'd function very well knowing there was this, right. this tumor in my, my chest. And so I had the surgery and, um, you know, that was my first experience, the medical system, first experience being in a hospital. Um, and so I learned a lot and it took about two weeks and every day that went by waiting for pathology, they said, oh, it'll take five days. Then I said, oh, a couple more days. And then finally they said, it's inconclusive. We need to send it to some other experts. And at that point, that's when I sort of started to worry. Um, and so about two weeks after surgery, they called and said, you know, can you come in? And, and I was supposed to go back to school the next day. And we sat down and, and the doctor said, we, we talked to an expert pathologist at the Mayo Clinic. Never forget his name, Peter Paralero. And he has confirmed that you have a very rare type of cancer called chondrosarcoma. Um, and that's when sort of everything changed. <laughs> now you, so did you not go back to school right away? I actually did go back yeah. the next day. Okay. Um, and my parents really encouraged me to go back. Right. Uh, my parents um, really helped with some of these key decision points because of course. they said, if you stay home, all your friends are going back to school. You're going to be by yourself. You're not going to have anything to do. You might as well go back and be around your friends and, and your teammates. And um, it was the best decision I ever made because I was able to stay on track and graduate on time and sort of not not dwell on things. What at was home. your mindset like, though? Like, I guess after getting the news about this rare form of cancer, even though you went back to school, you still got to deal with this, right? Yeah. I mean, my initial reaction was like sadness. And then I realized very quickly how much or how little I knew yeah. about cancer, much less this type of cancer. So I felt really naive. And so we had to sort of learn a lot. Um, and then I got frustrated and angry and, you know, it's like, wait, why can't I play soccer? Why can't I be normal? Why can't I just do things other people are doing? So there was like all of that happened pretty quickly, ups and downs. Did the surgery stop you from having to play soccer or was it because of the cancer that? Yeah, it was It was really the surgery because of where it was in my chest. Like when I went back to school, I could barely walk. Yeah. Like I could barely walk standing straight up. Yeah. I couldn't carry book bag. I couldn't, couldn't lift anything. I couldn't do just normal activities. Yeah. Um, and again, I was super healthy prior to this, so it, it felt really weird. Um, Everyone listening out there also, this young man was a really, really, really accomplished soccer player. And so here he's at Brown University, and I'm, I'm can only, I just know from experience, um, you probably really wanted to be out on the pitch playing soccer, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, at that age, I, that's, that was my first passion, right? right? So right. you take that away. I mean, the, the fortunate fortunate aspect for me was that pretty quickly or early on, I realized that I was going to survive, right? It wasn't. And so when I moved past that, then it was like, well, I want my normal quality of life. Yeah. You know, how quickly can I get back to that? And fortunately, I had an amazing coach um, and he was super supportive, but he was also um, someone who encouraged me to do things that I would not have done otherwise. Um, so as an example, he basically forced me to come to practice every day, even though I couldn't play mm -hmm. and I would sit on the side and watch mm -hmm. and it was annoying at first, but it like felt good to be around everybody. Sure. And so he then made me set goals and made me jog when I could and then run when I could and then scrimmage when I could and then play when I could. And like, he really, he really helped me get back to some sense of normalcy, even though it was 
you know, as, as we always say, the new normal. Yeah. When did the second cancer come about then? Was that like shortly thereafter or? Yeah. So the first was in August of 96 and the second was in March of 97. Okay. Um, I had gone home for uh, like a little spring break. And while I was home, I went in to see a physician at Johns Hopkins and um, she said, hey, we got to do a little biopsy on this one um, one spot on your skin that I noticed. And uh, I literally had the biopsy, didn't think anything of it. And then I went back to school and I was getting ready to go to practice one afternoon and, and she called um, to share the news. And again, I, I remember thinking, gosh, I don't know anything about melanoma. Right. <laughs> you know, like here I'd right. learned everything I could about this other type and now I'm starting over. Um, and so it was just sort of a, almost a deja vu of, of doing it all again. So for folks out there that are like dealing with these kind of things, what, what's your advice to, to, you know, people that are getting diagnosed and unfortunately maybe don't have the resources that you had, you know, and your family gave you a any thoughts of, of what people should be doing? Yeah. I mean, I think cancer in some ways is the great equalizer, right? Because it doesn't matter who you are or how educated or how much money you have, or as soon as you hear those words, you, you immediately don't know what to do. Right. And it's a, it's a feeling that is, is tough, especially for people who like to be in control right. and who like to sort of be able to make decisions, mm -hmm. but you got to make a lot of decisions with, imperfect information. Um, my, my advice is, is to just one, know that you're not alone. There's a lot of people who have either been down this path or who are going down this path currently. Um, number two is, you know, you have to be able to stay in control of some aspects of your life and whether that's your diet or your nutrition or your exercise or being around family or some kind of routine, there's a lot of things with cancer that you can't control, but they, it, to the extent that you can control a few aspects of your life, I think psychologically that makes a big, a big difference. And then really got to find your, your, your support group, right? Your, your, your friends, your family, your classmates, your teammates, your colleagues, whoever it is in your life, the one or two or three key people who are going to support you and help you because it's human nature, I think, is that we don't like to ask for help. Right. And nobody likes to be in that position of asking for help. And yet you need help <laughs> and you need yep. people to be able to talk to and, and people that are going to help you along the journey. So um, it can be super overwhelming. And yet it's an experience that millions of people have had. Yeah. So um, let's talk about now family and how, and I have the um, the great fortune to know Doug's mom and dad and brother, uh, fantastic people. So how'd the Omen Fund come about? What was the, what, I mean, obviously your cancer sparked that, but what, what was the, you know, what made you create a, f a whole foundation? Yeah. I mean, it was really born out of the notion that as much as we had sort of quote, everything you think you need, the one missing ingredient, the one thing that I could not find was any programming specific to people my age. And a lot of organizations that we would reach out to and call would say, oh, well, very few people your age get cancer, so we don't offer those programs. And a lot of the, I mean, the whole medical system essentially is set up for pediatrics and adult medicine. And every hospital has an arbitrary sort of line, and it's either 18 or 21. Right. And if you're under 18, you get treated here. And if you're over 18, you get treated there. And the problem with that is that for different stages of life, there's just different needs. And, um, 
you know, there are people that, that Mitch, you and I have known for a long time who focus in this adolescent young adult space. And, you know, they'll say things like when you walk into a waiting room, you know, you either can see a highlights for children or you can see a good housekeeping. But rarely do you see anything for young adults. And so it can be a lonely experience, especially when you're in an environment that is designed for another age group. And so when I was in the hospital, as an example, I had a thoracic cancer tumor. And so I was on the thoracic floor. Well, most people on that floor had lung cancer. Most people on that floor were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm -hmm. And here I was 19. And that was just sort of the arbitrary sort of place that, that, that I was assigned. Um, so, so it was really born out of this notion that we know there's got to be other young adults out there. We know there's other people who are struggling. Why don't we figure out a way to connect them and offer peer support and offer programming that's specifically relevant to that age group? And we didn't know what we were doing, and it was just an idea. But I think as many people who are listening will know, and we didn't do it for this reason, but like, there's also the benefit that you gain from focusing on helping others. And you sort of stop dwelling on your own experience, and you start focusing on how can you support other people who are going down the same path. And can you give us a little bit of a, like, so where's the Ullman Fund now? I mean, I, I know the young man that's running the organization, and um, it, from my vantage point, it seems to be thriving, but um, there are probably people that are listening to this podcast that perhaps could use the resources of the Ullman Fund. Yeah, absolutely. So the organization is thriving. It's based in Baltimore. Um, Brock and the team are doing an amazing job. I am just humbled and proud to support them, but they are driving the mission forward. So a couple examples, they employ um, cancer navigators, social workers who are at almost every cancer hospital in the Mid-Atlantic. And literally the day a young adult is diagnosed, they walk into the room and they introduce themselves and they say, I specialize in supporting young adults. I mean, I, I can't amazing. imagine the difference that makes. Yeah. And, and they are credentialed, so they're, they're able to partner with these healthcare institutions. And they then stay with that patient for their, their journey and help them along the path. Um, there are funding programs for scholarships. So a lot of people who are diagnosed with cancer as young adults can't afford secondary or post-secondary education. And so whether that's four-year college or community college or trade school or art school, the financial barriers can be significant. So there are programs for that. And then one of the things we're most proud of is a few years ago, the team had the idea to build a house. Yes. And they built what's called Ullman House, and it's really six row homes in Baltimore. Um, and it is a place for young adults who are being treated at any institution. It happens to be close to Hopkins, but it could be any institution. And there are nine suites uh, for patients and their families to live for free. Um, and unfortunately, it's almost always a capacity. Yeah. And, mm. um, but it's designed for young adults. So as an example, there's a great gym. There's a great rooftop lounge. There is a massive uh, music studio where young adults can play music and rock music and uh, there's drums and, you know, can be themselves. That, yeah. Yeah. They can feel a little sense of normalcy. And um, so we've learned a lot through that and it's been, it's been awesome. Got to see take it. a trip. I, I've got to go see that, that spot. Cause I, I hear so much about it and just to hear you explain it, it just like, it sounds like it's just a, just a wonderful resource for people to have. And uh, could, could you tell our audience where, if they want to get more information about the Ullman Fund and some of the resources uh, where they could go? And we'll put this in the notes of the, on the website awesome. as well, but would love to know from you where they might be able to go. Yeah, the best place to go is ullmanfoundation.org. 
okay. um, ulmanfoundation.org. Okay, great. So, so Doug, you know, something clicked with you, something changed when, you know, obviously you got the cancer diagnosis, you're dealing with it. You became an advocate. You became, you, you like made this your calling. You, you decided that this was going to be your career trajectory. I imagine when you went into Brown University, you probably, I don't know if you had your mind made up what you wanted to do or not. Um, maybe you wanted to be governor of Maryland or something like that. But, <laughs> no. um, but you know, tell, tell, tell us what put you on this trajectory to do what you, you're doing now and, you know, where you went from Ullman. You went to what was then the Lance Armstrong Foundation, became the Livestrong Foundation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, look, my initial plan was to coach soccer and teach. Okay. And I love being around young people. They, they give me energy and, and excitement and inspiration. And so that's what I had planned to do. I was studying history and education and, um, and then things changed. I actually continued. I did my student teaching. I got certified really? uh, to teach. I did seventh grade social studies. Um, and it was awesome. Hmm. I mean, it, it in was Maryland? It, in Howard County. No, I did it. I, I, I taught in uh, Seekonk, Massachusetts, okay. which was just across the border from Providence mm. um, and did seventh grade and had a great mentor and um, loved spending time with, with the kids. And um, but then had the opportunity to do this work full time. And, you know, I grew up in a family that fostered service and advocacy and parents were always involved in things. And, and especially when there were things that you felt were sort of like either an injustice or places where you felt like you could really make a difference. And, um, so yeah, that's just sort of how the path meandered a bit. And, um, so why Texas, to, why, why LAF then be what became Livestrong? Yeah. I mean, when I got to know Lance, um, you know, you've heard the story before, but he reached out to me and sent an email and, and didn't know him. And this was before he had won the tour de France. And, you know, the more I learned about the opportunity that he had really because of his story and his visibility, um, it just was an exciting opportunity, especially for somebody at the time I was very young to focus on how to spend money and create programming for people with cancer. And, you know, as somebody just like you've done your whole career, I mean, raising money is, is incredibly, um, satisfying because you get to use those resources to make an impact, but it's also challenging and exhausting. And at that time in my life to be able to have somebody say, Hey, don't worry about fundraising. Just try to figure out the best programs to help people was pretty, was pretty awesome. And, and, um, and it was a great experience. I mean, you know, we, we, uh, had a lot of opportunities that very few organizations ever get. And that's what was really special. I had the the good fortune to uh, be able to work uh, at Livestrong, and so I, I really got to know Doug Doug quite well. Uh, I had known him a little bit before, but got to know him and uh, certainly watch him uh, rise through the ranks and um, see him make a, a, a great impact. Um, I believe as chief mission officer, right first at Livestrong, and uh, and we did some really special things with the the Livestrong Yellow wristband and and many other things. And I think uh, I think you would agree that we kind of started that putting survivorship on the map. Absolutely. And, and look, we were fortunate to attract you to come <laughs> because you're, you had a unique set of skills and expertise and experiences to, to know how to have a mission driven organization that also leveraged the visibility 
of someone who was culturally relevant and and that confluence of sort of sport and celebrity and mission was something that we tried to take advantage of and um yeah i mean i have such fond memories and and of that time because any opportunity felt like it was possible yes so talk to us a little bit about the great work at pelotonia um, what you're doing to make a difference in the world of, of research, um, not only at the great Ohio State University, but now, you know, supporting some of the programs of the AACR and, and others as well. Could you tell us a little bit about where Pelotonia is going, um, where, where, you know, a little bit more about your vision uh, and, and what possibilities you see out there for um, furthering research and continue to make an impact? Yeah, I mean, look, Pelotonia is celebrating our 15th anniversary year this year, and um, it's been remarkable to witness prior to coming here the early success of the organization and then over the last eight years see what this community of broad-based support has been able to achieve. And um, much like we were just talking about at, at, at LAF and, and Livestrong, um, the community here has big aspirations and they want to do big things and they don't sit around and, and explore why things can't happen. They say, no, we can do that. And one of the things I've come to appreciate and love about Columbus is that it's, it's got this Midwest humility and yet it's got big aspirations. Um, and I'll just share this anecdote because it's something I think about a lot. And that is that, you know, Columbus is the 14th largest city in America. Um, which most people don't know or don't uh, uh, think about. And historically, and I don't know what the stats are since the pandemic, but prior to the pandemic, Columbus had the largest Ronald McDonald house in the country. Hmm. Columbus had the largest race for the cure in the country. Columbus had the second largest cycling event in Pelotonia in the country. Like no one thinks about Columbus in that way, but it is so generous and so philanthropic. And so it's fun to be in a, in a geography that wants to do these, these big, bold. What do you attribute that to? I mean, that, that's amazing. Uh, that's amazing philanthropy and volunteerism must, I mean, is it Midwest culture? I mean, what do you think? I think it's partially Midwest culture. I think it's partially, um, we have a lot of fortune 500 companies here and those companies many years ago because of some of the prolific leaders basically decided that they would collaborate on things. And so in many locations or cities, you have, you know, X company is the sponsor of X event and Y company is over here doing this event. And, and they sort of divide and, and sort of each attached to something. And one of the biggest successes of Pelotonia and others in our community is that the companies don't care about getting credit. They all want to support things that are doing great work. And so we're able to have Bath and Body Works, Victoria's Secret, Nationwide Insurance, Cardinal Health, you know, uh, Huntington Bank, you know, Diamond Hill. Like we're able to have every uh, safe light, like all of those companies support Pelotonia and they don't care who gets credit. They just want to be as engaged as possible. 
and that's what's driven a lot of the the grassroots success is seeing that collaboration and that alignment. Unusual and amazing, right? To have that. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally. No doubt. Totally. Yeah, no, no, totally. no doubt about that. What's your belief about the research and and where we can? I mean, I mean, we see every day new things happening, and you know, brilliant scientists. Yet there's still a need to fund groundbreaking cancer research. Pelotoni has been funding some remarkable things at uh, at the James. Um, yep. You know the, the you know immuno oncology and, and many things, but what what's your what do you think about the future with with regard to cancer research? Yeah, I mean a few few thoughts. One, you know we're we're very fortunate to have this great collaboration with the James, and most again maybe it's Midwest humility, maybe not. But um, one of the things that's unique about the James in Ohio State is that it's the third largest cancer program in North America. Right. In fact, it's on the verge of becoming the second largest. Um, and it is the largest university in the world, in the world, that has every discipline on one campus. So you have the vet school, the agriculture school, you have the social work school, you have, I mean, everything is one campus. And so the, the opportunity to collaborate from a research perspective is really attractive. And so we're proud of what we've done with the James and continue to do with the James and have the new Peloton Institute for Immuno-Oncology. Um, and yet a lot of people that we fund or have funded historically, they don't all stay here. So we now have researchers whose careers may have been started with Pelotonia funding when they were at OSU, who are now all over the country and all over the world. And so we have the, the, this network of people that we're proud to have supported and, and continue to support. And then more recently, in collaboration with you and your colleagues and our great partnership with Victoria's Secret, we were so excited to launch a new research effort that is investing in female scientists who are studying cancers that affect women. And, you know, we all know that women have been funded at a lower rate historically than their counterparts. We all know that many women leave the field because they decide to start a family or they sort of leave for other reasons. And, and yet there's been this huge gap in funding. And so through the generosity of Victoria's Secret and in partnership with with your colleagues and, and the expertise that AACR brings, it's just an example of something where we feel like we can push the envelope in an area that needs it. And we are eager to do that more in the future um, because being able to put some capital that's, you know, maybe a little bit riskier, a little bit um, uh, more aggressive um, than other funders potentially is something we're, we're excited to well, do. Uh, that's awesome. And I, I think about, you know, cancer health disparities and doing something in, in that area could be something right up, uh, right up your alley and right up our alley. But we're so proud of the uh, uh, the program with with Pelotoni and Victoria's Secret, and you know we were on a conference call what about a month ago with some young scientists that got the grants, and boy were they brilliant young people, and uh, I you know I I was blown away, and um, and to see the the smile on their face and just the kind of that the gleam in their eye with what they're doing. They're going to make a huge difference in the world, right? And they're going totally. to, and, and my grandchildren and your kids and your future grandchildren, you know, are going to, I think, be in a pretty good shape one day because of this great work. So it's it's re really really amazing. Totally. And there and that and I think your point is like there's so many young scientists yes. that have great ideas, and the biggest risk to the field is that we allow these people to leave the field because they don't get funded, right? Or they don't have the opportunity to pursue their their, their, their goals. And, and just recently I was on the call with, I was on a call with a Nobel laureate, uh, who I'm sure ACR has funded many times. Um, and he said something 
that I'll never forget. He said, I rarely use the word never. And I said, well, explain. And he said, and in fact, when I hear a scientist use the word never too much, I know they aren't thinking big enough. And he said, we as scientists are supposed to think about what's possible and then go pursue what's possible. And it was just really inspiring. And like you hear stories like that, and it's like, how can we drive more resources to people with these big, bold ideas? So that makes me think about the word believe and where I, we came up with believe in progress was a little bit because, and you tweet about Ted Lasso a lot. And I, <laughs> and I watched the show last night. I'm sure you did as well. But um, why, why do you, how did that affect you? Just that whole, you know, the whole believe, you know, Ted Lasso type philosophy. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, especially at this time in our life and in the world where things have become so divided, you know, you have a choice every day to be optimistic about what's possible in the future. And I think in terms of cancer research, we should all believe because we've all seen what's possible. Yes. There are people alive today that had they been diagnosed 10 or 15 years ago, they would not be here. And so when you see a story and you see a breakthrough and you see what can happen, and then you understand that one of the reasons it, it's not happening more is dollars or, you know, approvals or speed or, you know, whatever the barriers might be. And you think, gosh, we can remove those barriers. We can, we can believe and, and pursue this. And so it's the only way to live right. in my, in my mind. Well, that, that's what I've always, uh, always loved about you. And, um, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask how the family was, how are the kids and how's Amy Grace, everybody doing well there? They're doing great. They're doing great. Thank you for asking. And, you know, you've been a friend and a mentor and a leader I've looked up to. And uh, I hope your family as well. And I'll just tell you this one anecdote because it happened yesterday. Yes. But I was driving my daughter to school. She's 11 and um, she's in sixth grade. And she had recently told me that sometimes she didn't like to use the bathroom at school because people were vaping. Mm. And we had this long conversation. I reached out to my colleagues at the Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids and she's now taken on this issue. She met with the principal yesterday. She said, we got we to gotta do something to educate these kids how, about how dangerous this is. And so um, they're doing great. And I'm hopeful that they will you know, continue to, to find ways to, to help make a difference in this, this fight against there's, cancer. There's no doubt. Um, so, Doug, tell us uh, where to go for information about Pelotonia. If people want to ride in this summer's uh, event, uh, where can they go for that? Again, we'll post this on the website and promote it. Awesome. Yeah. We, they can go to pelotonia.org, P-E-L-O-T-O-N-I-A.org. And uh, we'd love to have them for our big event in August. We also are launching a new event in September called Gravel Day, which is uh, taking advantage of the huge trend to gravel cycling. Oh. Um, so that'll be a first time event for us. And um, it, we're, we're real excited. Is that going to be in the city or where is that like? It'll be about it'll be in about an hour outside of Columbus. Okay. Um, Ohio has some of the best gravel terrain. Really? Um, it's not mountain biking, right. but it's gravel. And it's, you know, I was explaining to somebody this morning, it's, it's like trail running or hiking. Okay. You're out in nature. Mm. It's beautiful. Sounds like fun. There are no, there are no cars. So it's just a different cycling experience. And we're excited to launch that this year. Well, Doug, um, really, really appreciate you coming on today. I'm so very proud of you and you know, you're, uh, you're making a great impact in the world. And for that, I'm grateful and appreciative. And uh, you'll always be a very close friend of mine and your family and uh, your amazing guy and, you know, love you and uh, keep up the great work, buddy. Keep up the great work. 
feeling is mutual and uh, we'll collaborate for many, many years. Sounds good to me. Have a great day. Give everyone my best. Take care. Once again, thank you to our listeners, supporters, and donors. Remember, your support drives the progress against cancer. Once again, please consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing this episode with a friend, and heading over to our website, aacr.org, to consider making a donation. Thank you for listening to Believe in Progress, the AACR podcast. This podcast is produced by CollegeCast, LLC. Please visit www.collegecastpodcast.com for more information. And don't forget, cancer research saves lives.